If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Now, this topic's been coming up a lot lately. There's been a lot of debate around Canadian history and uh, in particular around certain figures from Canadian history and how they should be remembered, how we should talk about their legacies, and maybe none more so than than John A. Macdonald. This came up yesterday, in fact. Uh, the Premier put out a statement uh, marking John A. Macdonald Day and uh, had some, some very um, favorable things to say about John A. Macdonald. And I think maybe he was being somewhat deliberately provocative because it, it certainly did leave out um, some of the negative aspects of his legacy. And so there's, there's been that conversation. How do you balance all of that? Because you, you can't ignore the bad, I get it, but nor can you ignore the good. And, and I think there are those who want to do that. You know, case in point, the toppling of this uh, McDonald's statue in, in uh, Montreal last year. Uh, So today, an interesting piece released by the McDonald Laurier Institute, and it's a message from more than 130 historians, policy experts, and thought leaders. And it's a joint statement in defense of McDonald. Not a blanket defense of everything he did, but recognizing that he was a consequential figure in Canadian history and definitely did do some good. Uh, joining us to talk more about it, one of the signatories uh, of this piece, which you can find at mcdonaldlaurier.ca, Patrice Dutil is a professor of political science and uh, public administration at Ryerson University. And there's been a lot of uh, debate around uh, Egerton Ryerson as well. But, uh, Professor, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. My pleasure to be with you. Why, why do you think it was important to, to put this out and to, um, you know, to, to, to ensure that we have some, I think, proper context to all of this? Well, context is always important. We needed to do this this time on the anniversary of John A. McDonald's birth because of what happened in 2020. Uh, it's been a rough year for John A. McDonald. And, you know, uh, the, you talk about the, uh, the statue being um, wrecked in Montreal, but all across Ontario, uh, in Kingston, in Picton, in Toronto, in Hamilton, in Wilmette Township. Uh, all the statues were defaced in Ontario. Uh, there's a school in Nova Scotia that is uh, changing its name. They don't want McDonald anymore. They want something else. And, of course, the law school at, uh, in Kingston, uh, Queen's University, is removing, has removed the name of Johnny McDonald from the building. So um, there, there's been a context, and we wanted to respond to that. And uh, we got people together. This happened very, very quickly. Got people together and got friends to sign it. And uh, there we go. So this is meant to to counter all of that, right? So very much. How, how do you approach this? Because you know, I think you're going to get accused of you know whitewashing his legacy or ignoring yeah. some of the negative aspects of his legacy. Yes. But how do you see it? Well, we're very careful. We don't ignore it, and you know, we do not deny the fact that. 
Johnny McDonald, uh, for instance, did create residential schools, Indian residential schools. He did this in 1883. But what we do point out is that, number one, Johnny McDonald did not insist that Indigenous kids attend this school. It was never mandatory. It became mandatory after he died. He also insisted that boys and girls attend these schools if they chose to. That kind of story is not is not brought out. And what it shows, I mean, you know, today we would, of course, naturally insist that boys and girls go to school. We would naturally insist that uh, they be free to go to school if they if they want to or not. So, I mean, we're, what we're trying to do here is rebalance the story on Johnny McDonald. And we're also trying to say, well, not just trying to say, we're saying it, that there's a whole lot more to Johnny McDonald than the Indigenous issue. Yes, let's talk about the Indigenous issue, but let's talk about everything else. The fact that he was elected and re-elected six times, served for 20 years, elected with 50% or more of the population, uh, of, of the popular vote. These things matter. Johnny McDonald was a man of his age. He fought like a man of his age, but he was popular in Canada as no one else. And then we can talk about all his accomplishment, the fact that he starts from practically nothing and creates a country coast to coast to coast. And by the way, when I say he does, of course I mean he did this with colleagues. We never say that John A. McDonald was it. He's not a dictator. He did it with friends. He was a very able politician. And what we're saying is let's recognize the fact that, you know, this man played an enormously important role and let's not let's not reduce him to one area of policy. It's interesting because, he, as you say, he's just just one man, and, and uh, a country is about more than just one particular individual. But do, do you think that by casting McDonald as a villain of history, that that it puts the the founding of Canada itself in in a different light? How do, how do you see the two being related? Oh, I do see it very much related. Uh, Johnny McDonald is being accused because he was, you know, present at birth. The reality is that the Indian Act, for example, which was created in 1876, was actually done by the Liberals under Alexander Mackenzie. Let's not forget that. Uh, it was, but nobody talks about Alexander Mackenzie now, do they? They go after John A. Macdonald. John A. Macdonald has become Canada incarnate, and there is no better tool to diminish the, uh, the image of Canada the promise of Canada, the history of Canada, than to go after that one guy, because that one guy is known to most Canadians. Uh, so there's definitely, I see this very much as an attack on the country. It's not about history. It's not about discussing the merits of John A. Macdonald. It's very much about undermining the storytelling that we can, that we can share around the creation of our country. And it's interesting, as you say, I mean, he's a product of his era, he's a product of his times, and, and you know, I think we're often guilty of using today's standards to judge, um, you know, figures from history. But on the question of, of corruption, and, and specifically the Pacific scandal, which is part yes. of Johnny McDonald's legacy, I, I think that's, that's different, because corruption is corruption, whether it's uh, present day or 150 years ago. How much do you think that taints Johnny well, McDonald and his legacy? Sure. You know what? I mean, there's no doubt 
the Pacific scandal. This happened in 1872 when John A. Macdonald asked his business friends, he asked his business friends to supply him with some money so that he can get more votes. First of all, we don't know whether that actually made a difference. The reality is that John A. Macdonald still got 46% of the Canadian votes. That's pretty amazing for a guy who's being accused of of corruption, isn't it? We're talking about the election mm-hmm. of 1874, when everything came out. Secondly, he didn't break any laws. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but those things happened in those days. And you know, we, we, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that we cannot, we cannot judge people in the past. Of course, we can judge people in the past. We have to judge people in the past, but we have to judge them by the standards of their day. So that when I say that, you know, and I'm not the only one. When I say that John A. Macdonald, for example, argued strenuously in favor of votes for women, argued to give the vote to indigenous people in 1885, that can't be denied. That, you know, that, 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 has, to be, that has to be understood. And he's the only guy doing that. I mean, and he couldn't get it, he couldn't get it to work. So, yes, he's working by the standards of his day. But what we're trying to bring out also is that in many respects, John A. Macdonald was far ahead of of uh, of his colleagues and i think that that's why they supported him so much i mean you know he could have been brought down he could have been brought down uh by the pacific scandal in 1872 1873 when it was revealed um but his his colleagues stood by him and they said you know he's still the best among us and yeah he made a mistake he played dirty <laughs> he did play dirty but my goodness they all played dirty in those days and uh, you have to you have to accept that. So yes, we can judge we can judge them by the standards of their day. We can judge them by the standards of today also. That's a fun game to play. But that's not as important as judging him as judging any historical figure by the standards of their day. Now, in terms of of why it mattered that it was him, as you say, this is somebody who who had a lot of popularity, who had a lot of clout, who was able to mm-hmm. to build consensus. Because, you know, I mean, if if Johnny McDonald had never been born, there there were other fathers of Confederation, there were other prominent yes. politicians uh, at the time that that uh, sure. you know could have also helped to build the foundations of this country. But why why did it matter that we had this man at this time with those kinds of political skills and and that kind of clout? Well, it. You know, that's a great question, and uh, you know, every it's always talked about among historians and in any history class. So why him? Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of confederation. Okay, the, the 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 idea that we most associate with John A. Macdonald was actually not his. The notion of 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 confederation, the way it is. You know, John A. Macdonald did not like provinces. He did not like the idea of having a subnational level of government. Had it been up to him, he'd have created it like England, like Britain and said, you know, we have a national government in the capital, and that's it. But people put pressure on him. People put pressure on the body politic. They said, no, you know, in Quebec, are you kidding? You think we're going to be governed by uh, an English majority in Ottawa? You know, get your head checked. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. So, yeah, so Johnny McDonald says, yeah, you know, okay, I get it. I get it. Of course I understand. And we have to respect the Quebec the, the francophone majority in Quebec, and it will have its own province. And you know what? Nova Scotia, too. And yeah, New Brunswick, yeah, okay. And Manitoba, you know, Manitoba comes in with a fight, but it comes in, and, and Johnny McDonald says, yeah, okay, we're going to create a Manitoba Act, and we'll have Manitoba uh, as a separate province. And, you know, he convinces British Columbia. It wasn't his 
favorite idea, but he lived with it. Why was he so popular? Because the man could still compromise. But to answer your question more specifically, what made John A. so irresistible was that he, in his day, could talk to Protestants, he could talk to Catholics, he could talk to Irish Catholics, he could talk to French Catholics, he talked to Francophones, he talked to people in in PEI, in BC, and they trusted him. And John A. had this remarkable ability. He was a friendly guy. He, he made people at ease. We're talking about an ability to do retail politics, as we call it today. That, or that, that set of skills that he had was unique. And we have to recognize that. You know, there's a reason why there are so many statues uh, in his honor uh, in, in eastern Canada. There aren't too many out west. Uh, but because people in his day recognized that. And we can't forget that. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I welcome debate on John A. We can argue about what he did with the indigenous community. Let's be blunt. John A. MacDonald wanted them to be assimilated. He, you know, he, like most people of his day, thought that the indigenous reality of Canada was going to disappear. It was going to disappear because logically, the indigenous people were going to join the system of capitalism and, you know, they're going to go to work like everybody else on a farm and in a factory. And, you know, this idea of being indigenous is just going to disappear. And so, you know, his notion was, well, let's get on with it. then. Let's get on with it. Let's get it done. He, he thought like most people in his day, Johnny McDonald said, you know, the people out West, uh, you know, in Saskatchewan, parts of Alberta, are hungry, they're starving. Let's give them rations. Let's provide them with rations. So today, he's being criticized because the rations were insufficient. Well, how many rations were being distributed in the Western United States? None. The American government would never even think about issuing rations to the indigenous people who were starving as a result of the disappearance of the buffalo. Well, you know, so he's being criticized for, for starving the indigenous people, at least we say, he tried. He tried. At least he tried. And there was no railroad in those days. This has all happened before. This all happens before 1885. There's no railroads. It's 2,500 kilometers. You know, ship it. <laughs> How are you going to ship food out west? So what we're saying is, and this is a good example of what we call presentism, of judging people by today's standards. I'm sorry, but in 1880, you couldn't FedEx the food. It just didn't happen. And you had to you had to salt it, you had to cure it, and sometimes it got spoiled. There's no refrigeration, you know. There's nothing. So, Judge McDonald, by the standards of today, say, yeah, you know, he didn't do a very good job with the indigenous people. Yeah, I buy it. I know that, I, and it's regrettable. And you know, he forced people into schools, and maybe he shouldn't have. Maybe he shouldn't have, and maybe that was a mistake. You know, the way and, and the way his his successors carried on. Because they all carried on. Let's not forget that residential schools existed until 1996, all right? That's just 24 years ago. Yeah. It carried on. So, yeah, you can, you can judge him, but judge him by his day. And, you know, I think that what we're, what, what, what we're trying to say is let's have a conversation about John A. McDonald, and let's make sure that our schools cover John A. McDonald, because they're not. And that's really the thing that, that bothers us the most. Uh, well, we're very concerned about... You know, Alberta does not have a required Canadian history course at the secondary school level. You guys can graduate high school 
without taking a Canadian history course. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from Toronto, and I'm not going to give anybody any lesson. But right. Alberta is not the exception here, all right? Seven provinces in Canada do not require a Canadian history course. I personally find that really outrageous. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree with that, and it's interesting timing because we're going through a curriculum review right now. Hopefully that'll be rectified. We'll leave it I there. So. I want to let people know uh, they can read this piece for themselves at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, but, um, yeah, right, I mean, you know, and, and find those textbooks and those history books, right? I mean, even if uh, we're all out of high school, we can still, I think, learn a bit about our history. Uh, Professor oh, yeah. Detail, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All the best Bye-bye. to you. Take care. Uh, Patrice Dutille, uh professor at uh, Ryerson University, one of the organizers uh, of this uh, initiative. And they say, yes, look, it's not a blanket defense of Johnny McDonald, and maybe nobody was more harsh on him than his uh, political opponents in his, in his day. But um, they, they say that the debate has shifted too far. The pendulum has swung too far. And so they're pushing back uh, against the notion here that, that this is uh, some kind of villain of history. And they say, on balance, this is a positive legacy, which factors in all of the negative, too, and we shouldn't ignore that. Right, welcome to this hour. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Coming up after 1.30, we'll talk about Johnny McDonald's. Hero? Villain? Somewhere in between? Uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, with a new piece today. In fact, involving 130 historians and other experts. And a pretty in-depth look at Johnny McDonald's legacy and concluding that on balance, it definitely was a positive one. So we'll talk about that coming up after 1.30, of course, this week, marking uh, Johnny McDonald's birthday. So we'll uh, reopen that conversation coming up after 1.30. Not more to get to on the program this afternoon. Uh, just a note as well, Dina Hinshaw apparently will be providing an update at 3.30 this afternoon. She was there with the Premier and the Health Minister yesterday. Looks like she'll be solo today, uh, but we'll have that live at 3.30. Now, there were some comments yesterday from the Premier, and again, uh, earlier today, he was on with Danielle Smith. Uh, about uh, vaccines and um, the state of affairs in Alberta, and also uh, specifically with regard to the health restrictions that remain in place. The province has uh, put those in, or kept them in place, extended them until the 21st of this month. Uh, and the premier today, uh, speaking with Daniel Smith, saying he hopes that they can look at relaxing or at least having a targeted relaxation of those by the end of this month. So it looks like they'll remain in place for now. There is some frustration building, obviously, and we've heard that anecdotally about some businesses in some parts of Alberta, uh, hair salons, gyms, tattoo parlors, uh, saying the hell with it. We're, we're just going to reopen. I mean, I, I get why the province felt it had to do something. We were getting to a bad place uh, by late November. But I think we also need to understand that this lockdown 2.0 has been really tough on businesses, uh, some more than others, obviously. Uh, the Alberta Chambers of Commerce uh, is calling on the government uh, to, to have a plan here to safely but quickly move to uh, allow shuttered businesses to reopen. And joining us uh, for more on that, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Ken Coldley, who is uh, president and CEO of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce. Uh, Ken, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Um, so what's your sense, either what maybe you've been hearing directly from government or just what you, like the rest of us, have, have gleaned from the Premier the last couple of days in terms of where we're at and when we might see some of these lifted? Well, you know, um, the reason why we called on uh, uh, the government to take a look at 
allowing businesses that are currently fully closed uh, to reopen uh, is, uh, I guess, patterned after what the government did for registered massage therapists. Um, recognize that all these personal service businesses that you mentioned have been locked down in one form or another for about four months over the last, uh, what do we be in this thing, about 10 months now. Uh, and things are getting very critical for these businesses. Um, you know, they've got bills to pay, they've got uh, own personal expenses as well, and it, they are in a position which is sort of unlike a lot of the other businesses that are currently operating on a restricted basis. Um, they are have no opportunity for any type of revenue. So what we're asking the government to do is to work with these uh, types of businesses, take a look at what the precautions were that they've, they've put in place, um, you know, in, in varying stages till we got to this point here, and, and maybe reevaluate and, and allow the, the businesses that are currently uh, closed to open at least on somewhat of a limited basis, uh, still bearing in mind the necessity to protect their patrons as, as well as their staff, um, just take a look at what they've actually accomplished in order to, to do that protection. And rather than having a, a blanket full closure for those personal services businesses, take a look at where we could uh, maybe allow them to open somewhat limited and have some sort of revenue. Yeah, kind of a, a modified uh, approach, like like we've done with some other businesses, right? So be, it, it, it is a fair point that we've got some rules in place that, that force some businesses to close altogether, but others can remain open with some uh, modifications in place in terms of how they do business or their capacity and, and other changes that they have to implement. So what you're saying then is to kind of take that approach and if you know, there are businesses that are prepared to put those kinds of policies or procedures in place to make some modifications that maybe too they should have that opportunity. And I would dare say that a lot of these businesses have already accomplished that. Uh, combine that with the fact that, that folks who are hairstylists go through a um, somewhat of a, a rigorous apprenticeship program. They are taught about sanitization. They are taught about the importance of uh, preventing cross-contamination. Um, so I think if the government took a little bit closer look at those types of businesses, they may in fact see that there is a pretty substantial um, uh, protection already uh, in place um, for those patrons. And listen, I mean, um, why do businesses do that? Well, obviously they want to protect the, the health of Albertans, they want to protect themselves, and they also want to ensure that their business is allowed to continue to operate. Yeah. Um, so have, have you got any response from the government yet? Do you think there, there's uh, any kind of openness to taking this approach? Well, not heard anything. Um, I think uh, the government hopefully will, will address the issue or what our suggestion is uh, fairly rapidly because time is, is of the essence in this one. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, community chambers tend to be the 411 number in their community when they want information. They also tend to be the 911 number in their community when they're having severe business issues. And uh, we've had a lot of our community chamber members contacting our community chamber saying, look, at, here's the situation. I can't afford to pay my bills. I can't afford to you know, pay my rent when it comes up or my mortgage payment. Um, and I'm fully tapped out on cash. Um, and, and what a lot of people also don't recognize is that if you're a small business, chances are, if you have any financing from your bank, uh, you have to give them a personal guarantee. So it's not just about your business. It's also about your personal assets if you've granted the, uh, the bank a, a personal guarantee. So this is a very dire situation that a lot of these folks are going through. Right. I mean, ultimately, the, the long-term solution is to get doors open again. I mean, d does this speak at all to where there's still gaps in, in government supports, though, do you think? Well, you know what? I mean, supports are supports, but 
Uh, and uh, don't get me wrong, I was uh, glad that the government of Alberta introduced their phase two of the relaunch grant. That's an additional $15,000. But also bear in mind that uh, these folks who are in, in personal service industries, um, they're going to be closed for a total of six six weeks uh, from when the first uh, enhanced lockdowns happened in December. Um, and you can get through the, the relaunch grant pretty darn quick. Um, so, uh, again, it is just imperative that the government um, uh, take a look at it. And, and, you know, I mean, we are a supporter of, of uh, you know, uh, the government um, listening to the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health. Don't get me wrong on that one. Um, but there, there's still, I think there needs to be a little bit more research into this particular uh, group of industries um, to, to take a look at where where they can a- actually um, permit them to open somewhat. Well, what, what kind of businesses are, are we talking about? I mean, some might be better positioned than others to, to sort of have a safe reopening, but um, what, what do you see as, as maybe the kinds of businesses that this would most apply to? Well, I think you, you listed them all off uh, very well at the beginning of the, of the uh, segment. You know, we're talking about hair salons, we're talking about nails, uh, we're talking about uh, tattoos, uh, also uh, gym facilities. I know that when they're uh, a lot of the gym facilities, uh, certainly um, brought in some very stringent um, protection when they were allowed to reopen the first time. So I think those types of businesses, just take a look at, you know, have the businesses followed it. And, I mean, give them guidance, um, you know, a little bit more if there are enhanced measures that they have to take. Um, I'm sure they're they're probably more than willing to do so in order to get at least some revenue coming through the door. But it takes government to actually take, uh, I think, a real look at how business has adapted and business has uh, actually come to the plate with, um, you know, ensuring that uh, there are the, the, the recommended protections in place. Yeah, and, and as you say, I mean, time is, is of the essence here. I mean, uh, how, how quickly do you think is, is reasonable anyway? I mean, governments don't tend to move fast, but, uh, you know, what, what's reasonable timeline here for getting well, some clarity and some changes? Well, they actually did move fairly, fairly uh, um, expeditiously with the RMTs, with yeah. the registered massage therapists. Um, you know, and they, they found a workaround uh, with them. Uh, and again, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily work 100% where you have to get a, a referral from a, from a doc or from a medical professional. Um, so they have, with the re- registered massage therapist, actually did move fairly rapidly um, to uh, to uh, allow the limited reopening to them. Um, and I think if they put their minds to it, they probably could accomplish it in a fairly rapid uh, fashion once they've done the research as to what's in place. Um, and I think that's critical, um, especially since we don't know um, whether the restrictions will be lifted on the 21st. Is it going to be another two weeks? Is it going to be another month? Um, so we need to take a look at this this issue and, you know, the potential remedies uh, sooner rather than later. Much more at uh, abchamber.ca. Kim, uh, we'll keep a close eye on this, obviously, and uh, see what happens, but appreciate you making some time for us here today. Anytime, Rob. Thank you. All right, take care. Ken Colby is uh, President and CEO of the Alberta Chambers of Commerce. So uh, they're calling on government to to you know, come up with some compromise here. You know, as they say in their press release, we've seen examples of government and industry coming together to find safer ways for Alberta businesses to operate. So let's let's apply that to to some of these other businesses. So it, it was interesting. So they're not talking necessarily about let's open up uh, restaurants or bars, for example. 
and I suppose you could argue that those businesses are technically open with modifications in place or restrictions in place. Uh, but yeah, gyms and hair salons and tattoo parlors uh, have had to close. So if we're able to find ways for businesses with similar kinds of person-to-person interactions able to safely reopen, then maybe we can expand that a little bit. So that doesn't seem like an unreasonable ask, uh, I think, under the circumstances. Uh, we'll, we'll see if the province is amenable to that. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. 403-974-TALK is our number. Uh, Dina Hinshaw is going to be providing an update at 3.30 this afternoon. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, Dr. Hinshaw, along with uh, the Premier and the Health Minister, Tyler Shandro. Uh, they were there to talk about a lot of things. But one of the uh, announcements that was made yesterday was was worth, uh, I think, taking some time to talk about here, because uh, the government has been uh, had been criticized in recent weeks and under some pressure to rethink this because the idea of uh, getting vaccines into the arms of frontline health workers first has a lot of logic to it. But what didn't have a lot of logic to it was the decision to exclude paramedics and emergency responders. You know, all the reasons why you want first responders to be vaccinated first applies to people in those jobs. And so it didn't make a lot of sense that paramedics and uh, med- emergency medical responders weren't up there at the front of the line. So like I say, the government, I think, has finally heard that. They've relented. Here's uh, clip five. This was Health Minister Tyler Shandro yesterday. Today, we are further expanding eligibility by making the vaccine available to paramedics and emergency medical responders as well. Paramedics are on the front line, first and foremost, as healthcare workers. They are a vital component of our COVID response, and I know that all paramedics are working day in and day out to keep Albertans safe. Our ground EMS brings emergency room level care directly to patients when they need it. And I know our air ambulance system is able to effectively function as a flying ICU. And I'm proud of Alberta's EMS and paramedicine system And I'm so grateful for the work that you and all healthcare workers have provided throughout the pandemic to us as Albertans. Now, I I know this news will be welcomed by our EMS colleagues, and I'm very pleased that we are in a position to add them to the phase one rollout. This expansion of eligibility is important as we ramp up our efforts to get as many doses in the arms of healthcare workers as well as vulnerable Albertans as possible. Alberta Health Services will use their existing online booking system to arrange for the vaccination of these newly eligible healthcare workers. And I know there will be questions about when we can expect to see the rollout expanded even further here in Alberta. I ask that you be patient. We are waiting for additional vaccines to arrive. Okay, so that from uh, Health Minister Tyler Shandro yesterday. Joining us uh, for some reaction is Mike Parker. He is president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks for the invite. Good to hear you. Well, yeah, well, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, let me just get your initial reaction first, uh, you know, when, when you heard this yesterday. It, it's uh, been a difficult time. You know, we've been uh, advocating and talking about this since uh, early December with a very uh, limited response from any part of government. So uh, yesterday's response was great to hear. I, I'm not sure that lobbying changed anything in all of this, in the rollout. 
I would suggest that uh, that this is just the next natural piece in the, in the whole puzzle of trying to fit all this in. But it's it's, it's great news to hear uh, from from this government. Yeah, I, I, I bet I, it was interesting. I don't know. I don't know if the, the government was convinced to change its mind or if this, as you say, was kind of an evolution. But it was interesting because I was I was getting a lot of, you know, just emails from people, you know, random people out of the blue. And, you know, I get emails all the time about all kinds of things. But this was interesting because I was hearing it a lot. Like, do you know why paramedics aren't included? Like, why isn't the government doing this? So, I mean, it, it did resonate with people, whether that made a difference. Obviously, uh, people were paying attention. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people were paying attention to this. I would suggest that the, the playbook they're using for a, a mass vaccination of a population, the last time we've done this was 1955, and our frontline uh, paramedics out there every day uh, weren't, even a, weren't even a profession back in, when we last mm-hmm. did this type of activity. So there's a lot of learning and a lot of steps, and sometimes we might have tripped. And, and this might have been one of those cases. Uh, that's what I would suggest. And, and they've recognized that. Ontario figured it out a few weeks ago. Uh, tomorrow at the Public Health Agency of Canada's meeting, I'll be there to continue the conversation because this is not just an Alberta issue. This is a nationwide, and, and our frontline people need to get protected. And, and so it's, it's good to hear. We, we do have a, uh, some ongoing issues, though. Like, we're not done this fight. We have uh, folks that work X-ray and imaging within the emergency departments, and they're there all day long. We have folks that are social work. We have folks that are uh, lab techs that are working in emergency all day long, and they're being mm-hmm. excluded because they don't report to emergency. So these are some key pieces, again, that we're still tripping on and we have to fix because they are in danger as well. So, Well, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I get that. I think there's, there's some logic to that. What, what should the criteria be then? I think it would, would help maybe if we had some, some better criteria. What do you think it should be? Well, listen, let's, let's first talk about those that have the highest mortality rates. That should be number one in all of this. Yeah. So these are our long-term care folks. These are our folks at, at highest risk and those workers who work with them. That should be number one and a story. As we keep expanding and adding to this list, it's going to bring us to a point where we just can't ha- we don't have the vaccine. I'm, I'm told that right now, as of today, we have 25% in stock which means we still have some, yet I've got an email this morning. As, as you say, you get emails all the time. My email this morning reads from Alberta Health Services to an emergency uh, paramedic that says, we don't have any stock in northern Alberta, and we'll get back in touch with you when we have some. So, so there are problems here, and when you just keep adding to the list, adding to the list, we, we don't have the volume. Well, I also have a report that 20 million new vaccines are, I, and, I, and I'm unclear, shipped on their way, secured by the government of Canada, but I don't, I'm still waiting for a follow-up on that. So the yeah. caution is, if we keep expanding a list to everybody, it, it, it's dangerous because not everybody that's in the highest risk will get what they need. So let's concentrate on those with the highest mortality. Let's shift down to those that are at the most risk in emergency departments, in COVID, on front lines of first responders. Let's get us down to, to an area where all healthcare are protected, all of our public services are protected, all of our folks that work in the, in the, well, we learned real quickly that a grocery store uh, is an essential component of life. And let's get those folks safe as well before we start rolling it out to the general population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so as you say, there, there's still some logistical challenges here, even though the government has changed its policy. Um, I guess it's not clear, is it, when, when the first paramedics are going to receive their vaccines? So what I can tell you is that late last night, I was receiving messages from 
frontline paramedics that was clear. They had an email link. They clicked on it. They booked it. And within uh, the next day, I believe, or so. So I believe tomorrow is when the first appointments are being scheduled that I know. And I'm going to give you that as being a piece of anecdotal from a member out on the street that says my appointment is Wednesday morning at, I think, 10 o'clock. So it's good. In places, Mm -hmm. it's working and it's rolling out and it's getting our people protected. I would, I would also agree with you that logistically, this is going to be a nightmare unless it's managed properly. And so politicizing it doesn't manage it properly. Taking care of Albertans yeah. does. Well, ultimately, I think that's what people care about. I know there's, you know, there's going to be finger pointing between the provinces and, and the federal government, and, yeah, and maybe both exactly. levels have a point. But ultimately, I don't think Canadians care about those squabbles, right? They, they just want this looked after. I, I 100% agree. Let's, let's listen. Let's get our federal government to secure the product we need. Let's get it to the provinces to get it available to the members uh, on the front lines at highest risk. Again, we start on mortality rate basis, get those that are at most risk safe, and let's tear it down in a, in a very organized fashion without making any sort of judgments uh, outside of that. We've made some mistakes, yeah. Like I said, it's been a long time since we've done a, a national vaccination program. So, so we're going to stumble a bit. This was one of those pieces. We're still stumbling on a few others. But we're going to get it right, I hope. Yes, yeah, yeah, same here. <laughs> uh, Mike, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out, obviously, but uh, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. Hey, for anytime, Rob. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, cheers. Thanks, Mike. Mike Parker, president of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. Uh, so, yeah, look, I, I don't think they, they want to make this any more of an issue than it needs to be. Maybe it was an oversight. You could read more into it and say, oh, the government just doesn't understand or appreciate what paramedics do. Maybe it doesn't matter. It was uh, an oversight. It's been fixed. This is good. Let's move forward. So I, I like that approach. But it, it definitely did resonate with the public because I think we get it. And, and you know, maybe situations where, you know, you've had to call an ambulance or, you know, you, you've been at the scene of an accident or some kind of a situation where you see paramedics respond. You know what they do. And, and when you're in a, par- a pandemic like this, you know, any situation could potentially be a COVID situation. And so, yeah, it's it's certainly a job, I think, that, that entails some risk. And it just I think it makes sense. And obviously, uh, most people seem to agree that if we're, we're vaccinating frontline healthcare workers, I mean, you know, the paramedics are on the front lines. So good on the province. And um, let's keep this moving forward. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.